the great thing is that the great God we just prayed to and we talked with talks to us. He talks to us through creation, talks to us through our conscience, and most of all, he talks to us through, the, through his word. So let's read his word today. This is coming from 1 Samuel 26, 1 to 12. 26, 1. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalau, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakalah, facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in a wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learnt that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Amalek the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul. I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because... The Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Well, g'day everyone. Uh, great to be here together, isn't it? Uh, and I've had so many people comment on it. Get out of the way. I have had a haircut and I don't have a collar on. So if that's distracting you, you can just put that aside. This is my one collarless shirt. Um, so so it's, it's, it's come out for a run, hasn't it? Uh, and thanks for your prayer, Ben. Thanks for the reading, Mal. It's a, it's a great way to prepare uh, as we get ready for the sermon. And uh, a great reminder that uh, I don't actually have anything particularly unique to say. I hope that's not why you've come here to hear from me. Uh, we, we, we are here to hear from God and we've just heard from his word and we've prayed that God will speak to us through whatever I have to say. Um, and we also want to recognise one of the reasons we do question time each week uh, is because I'm not infallible. I'll get stuff wrong, I'll mix, miss stuff, I might miscommunicate something, or I might just not be clear enough. Or you just might have a question uh, that I haven't dealt with. So please uh, text those questions in. You can ask live if you're here in person, but if you're watching on YouTube, g'day Jed, I know you're probably there. Uh, feel free to text in, uh, number's on the screen, uh, and make sure you get it in before um, kind of the end of the service, otherwise... I'll get it later on tonight and it'll be too late to answer. 
Um, but as we, as we get into it today, we are in a, a beautiful part of the world on a glorious day. Uh, and, you know, I can hear the birds singing, the sun shining. And it just, right at the moment for me, feels wonderful. But that's not how life always is, is it? Uh, life is like this sometimes. Sometimes it is sunshines and rainbows and birds singing and the temperature's just right. But sometimes we're in desperate times, distressing times. Uh, you know, we, we've been, uh, been through some of these. I don't know if you've experienced uh, that those minutes or hours waiting for an ambulance to arrive with maybe a child who's struggling to breathe or a family member who, who is just out to it. You don't know if they're going to get there in time. And, and you'd describe that as desperate, wouldn't you? Desperate. Maybe you've just heard some devastating news about a f friend or family. Maybe you're still parenting and uh, kids have grown up and you, you hear some news that just breaks your heart. It might be when you're looking at the budget or what you haven't budgeted for and there's just not enough money to stretch across everything that needs to go. Or maybe you can resonate with a desperate situation when you're alone and lonely and, and no one else is there. Maybe there's been a death. Maybe it's a relationship that's failed. Uh, maybe uh, mourning a relationship that never was. Perhaps it's at work and you, you're facing another week. You might be facing that desperation right now. Uh, and you, the last thing you want to go is into this place, but you can't not show up. Because there's, there's, there's no avenues not to. You're trapped and you're desperate. So at different times in life, life seems out of control, doesn't it? There's times of deep distress when we do feel desperate. And, and if you're a Christian or if you believe there is a God, you might ask at that time, what is God doing? <laughs> Where is God in this? Whatever situation is, this, this desperation, this distress, what is God doing? <clears throat> Well, in today's passage, uh, it's a long, long passage, six chapters, <clears throat> and we find David on the run, and he is in a time of despair, a time of distress. He, he's on the run for, for his life from the king. He's being hunted by the people he loves and has served. Uh, his wife, Saul's daughter, who we learned a couple of chapters ago, loved him. He ran away because he was going to be slaughtered. She was given to someone else as their husband. We don't hear about her opinion in that, but David must have known. Uh, in today's passage, there's allies. Actually, people David had fought to protect, the, the townspeople of Kalea, turn on him. The people of Ziph, his, his own countrymen, betray him. And he also experiences a time of deep guilt because there's been a slaughter of the priests of the priest city of Nob. And it was David's fault. David bought that on them and he knows it. He, he is in a time of desperation, of deep, deep distress. And we're going to have a little bit of look at some of that today, good and bad, but the focus really on in these whole chapters, it's not even on David, it's, it's, it's actually on God and what he's doing amidst these ups and downs, mostly downs in these chapters. 
but what God is doing in these times of distress. And so that's what we're going to have a look at. We're going to see what is God doing in these desperate times. Uh, and we're going to see that God, God acts in provision, God acts in providence, God acts in prophecy, and he acts in provenness. I had to work pretty hard to get the Ps, but it, it helps me remember them. These are four things God does. And we're going to look at that to start with. Then we're going to see how, how all this points us to Jesus, because we know all of the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, points us to Jesus, the true King. And then we'll wrap up seeing how it fits for us. But, but let's pray again briefly and just confirm what Ben prayed for us earlier. Please, please join me. Lord, we come before you asking that, that you would speak to us. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds. Cleanse my lips, help me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word. And we do pray for encouragement. We pray for hope. We pray for a, a bright light to shine the way, uh, even in times of desperation. We, we ask that you would be gracious and give us that today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Um, well, first of all, what's God doing in desperation? Uh, he, he, he provides... He, he, he acts in provision. And what we'll do is I'm actually going to step us through one story from each of these chapters at each point. We actually see all four of those points in every story, but we, we don't want to get too repetitive. Um, so the first one we're going to look at uh, is in chapter, uh, chapter 21, uh, and it's this quite distressing story. Well, it's the start of it, where David has just fled uh, from Saul. And what happens is, is David, so from last week... Uh, David's on the run from Saul the king. David has served Saul. He's the established king. He's been faithful to him. But da the, the, the Bible tells us the Lord was with David, but the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And Saul can see that. He can see that God is blessing this young man who God had chosen to be the next king. And he's, he's pursuing him to kill him. So David, he, he's on the run, so much on the run, he left without food or sword. And, and David was a warrior, so pretty big deal to forget your weapons and, and run away without your sword. Um, and we'll pick it up there in verse 1. David comes to Nob, which is the priestly city. It's where all the priests live. It was around the tabernacle. And he comes to Ahimelech the priest. And we'll read it there. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered, Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, uh, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual. Whenever I set out, the men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy how much more so today so the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread uh, except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the before the lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away so a little bit going on here a little bit of context uh, in the the tabernacle which was the holy tent uh, that symbolized where that god was with his people uh, it's where the altar was where the ark of the covenant was kept uh, it was the symbol of God's presence. God, of course, is everywhere. He's not bound to a tent. But it was the place where you would come to interact with God through the priests in the Old Testament. There are a bunch of things in the temple, but, in the tabernacle. But one of the things here was bread. 
Now, in the ancient uh, Near East at this time, often uh, different cultures would have bread for their idols, and they thought they were feeding their gods. They'd put the bread there, and often the bread would mysteriously disappear. Uh, it was usually sort of taken out the back door, feeding their gods. This is not like that. The bread that was put before Yahweh, the Old Testament, or the covenant name for God, uh, was put there as a symbol that God provided bread for his people. Totally opposite. That's a theme throughout the Bible. We don't feed God, God feeds us. Not much of a God if we have to feed him, is he? No, no, God, God feeds us. So that's what the bread was there for. And they're big loaves, two and a half kilos each. Uh, it's pres- prescribed in the law. So it's big chunks of bread. Uh, but it was really only for the priest to eat. But that was all that was there. Uh, the other thing to notice here is that Ahimelech was trembling. Did you notice that at the start of the reading? He comes out to see David and he's, he's trembling. He knows something's up. And David's excuse is pretty thin, isn't it? Oh, I'm on a secret mission. You know, that's why I'm on my own. That's why I've got no food. That's why I've got no men with me. I think, I think Ahimelech knows what's going on. It was commonly known that Saul was trying to kill David, or had been at least. And here he comes running. He comes out trembling. Why are you on your own? And yet, yet he helps him. God provides this food when David had none. But it wasn't just food David was lacking, he didn't even have a sword. Have a look there in verse 8. David asked Ahimelech, Do you, don't you have a spear or a sword? I haven't bought my sword or any other weapon. Oh, because the king's mission was so urgent. And the priest replied, well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, who you killed at the Valley of Elah, is here wrapped in a cloth and behind the ephod. If you want it, take it, because there's no sword here but that one. David says, there is none like it given to me. What a weapon. What a weapon. He just, he just wanted a sharp stick. I got nothing. I need to defend myself. I'm on the run. And what sword just happens to be lying in the special place, hidden, wrapped in a cloth? Goliath's sword. There is none like it. What a weapon. God provides. But not just bread and not just a sword. He provides a faithful friend here, doesn't he? Ahimelech is, is, is faithful to David, isn't he? I, I reckon, it doesn't tell us that he knows David's lying, but I reckon he does. It's a pretty, pretty slim excuse. Oh, I'm on a secret mission. He's trembling when he comes out. Um, and, and, and he also knows that this is going to get back to Saul. Ahimelech knows that. Because we read there in verse 7, verse seven um, one of Saul's servants, the, the, the old king, uh, who was faithful to him, was there watching the whole interchange. And David and Ahimelech both knew that was happening. They knew this was going to get reported back. So this is risky for Ahimelech, isn't it? To, to, to be faithful and provide for David in a time of need. Yet he does. God provides for David, even in this time of desperation. So that's the first one, his provision. The second thing we see in the next little story, uh, and we will skip through it quite quickly... Uh, is God's providence. Now, I don't know if that's a word you use much in your week-to-week uh, uh, language, uh, but providence is the way God acts in the world. The Bible's really clear that God is sovereign. He has absolute power. He, can, he has the authority and power to do everything, and actually, he does. So his providence is when he uses his power to act, which is basically all the time. So God's providence is when God moves things around, changes things, organises things, plans things, decrees that they happen. We say, well, isn't that 
providence. That's God's providence. That's God acting in this world. And that's what we see in this next story, because there is a a group of people from the tribe of Judah, that's David's tribe, called the Ziphites. And you'd think if you're an Israelite, all the Israelites should be faithful to you, but my tribe, my people, they're the ones who are going to be faithful to me. But the Ziphites, they're, they're, they're not faithful to David. He's on the run, and they see a bit of an opportunity, maybe some opportunity to get in Saul's good books, but they know where David is. They can see where he's hiding, and so they send a delegation to Saul and say, hey, Saul, we know you're hunting David, we can hand him over to you. They betray him, so they they bring Saul down. Saul says, yep, yep, sounds good. I'll rally the troops. He turns up. It worked, and they they basically set an ambush for David. And we're going to pick it up there in verse 24. Um, So they they set out uh, and went uh, to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Moan, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Moan. But when Saul heard about this, he went into the desert of Moan in pursuit of David, and David was going on one side of the mountain, uh, Saul was going on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other, hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, Tune in next week for the next instalment of Saul and Esther. That's how it reads, doesn't it? It's like Toy Story. Ah, yeah, tune in next week. That, that's where you're going to cut it off. You've got to come back because he's trapped. He can't get away. This small force, this large force, there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Well, as Saul and his forces were closing on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. And Saul broke off his pursuit from David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamathelakoth. I think that's how you say it. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engendi. This is amazing, the protection, isn't it? He had nowhere to run. This is kind of the, the one time where David is, is really on the ropes. This is a knockout blow just waiting to happen. There's no escape. And what comes at just the right moment? A message, oh, the Philistines are attacking Saul, this is urgent, you can't deal with it later, you've got to come now. God's providence. God's providence. Now, I nearly called this point God's protection, but I changed my mind because I remembered the people in Israel who were being invaded by the Philistines at this time. We sort of miss that, don't we? If the Philistines are attacking the Philistines are attacking. They're somewhere else in Israel raiding a village. And Philistine raids weren't polite, knock on your door, hand over your goods. So it wouldn't have felt for that village, that town, like God was protecting them. But God was acting in providence. God God has big plans. God knows what's going on in the big stage. He, He knows what's best for his people individually and corporately and sometimes in our particular situation we might be in that village in Israel being attacked by the Philistines never knowing I I have no reason to think that they ever found out they didn't get to read this that the attack on them was the thing God used to save his promised king I don't think they ever found that out but God in his providence acted for his plans at just the right moment as he always does but often we can't see it. So that's God's providence. The second thing he does in 
our distress. The third thing we see in David's life here is, is prophecy, as in access to God's word. It's actually a big theme throughout these chapters. Uh, and next week, uh, Alan's going to be preaching and we're going to see that Saul did not have access to God's word. God would not answer him. He had no access to God's word. But, but David does have access to God's word. And, and we didn't read it, but in chapter 21, there is a horrendous scene after David visits Ahimelech the priest, because Saul does indeed find out that Ahimelech served David, and he comes and has the whole priestly community slaughtered. He, he wipes them out, and we know they were defenceless, because remember when David said, I want a spear, he says, we, we don't have a spear. We don't even have a sharpened stick. We have one sword in this town, and David took it away. And Saul slaughtered them, the, the whole community, except one, have a look, but one son of Ahimelech, the son of Atahab, named Abathar, escaped and fled to join David. And he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. But he was with David now. And we see again and again through these chapters that David now, he has a priest who has an ephod, which was the priestly garment. They had the Urim and Thurim, an ancient Israelite way of determining God's will, way God would speak through a priest, often to the king. And David sought uh, again and again in these chapters. David, David wants to know, should, what's going to happen, God? Where should I go? Should I defend these people? Will I be defeated? And God answers him. He, he, he has access to, to God's word. Access to God's word. God answers him. And on top of that, people keep on speaking God's promises into David's life. It is a time of distress, but sort of sprinkled through these chapters, a little, little glimmers of hope. Um, there's a really precious little scene in chapter 23 where Jonathan, uh, so he's just been betrayed by the people of Keilah. Uh, he's about to be betrayed by the, uh, the, the, the other town. Uh, and in the middle, Jonathan goes to David, his friend, Saul's son, they are... They are closer than brothers this is actually the last time they'll ever see each other before Jonathan's death but see what he does Jonathan went to David in Horosh and helped him find strength in God literally helped him strengthen in his faith he said don't be afraid my father Saul will not lay a hand on you you will be king over Israel and I'll be second to you even my father Saul knows this that's a promise God has made to David already an anointing and he reminds David, he strengthens him in the Lord. Speaks God's word to David. But, but I think the, the story we see God prophesying or giving his word to David most clearly in these chapters is with Abigail. Uh, we got to have a look at this in home group. It's one of my favourite little stories. It's, uh, go and have a read on it. It's in <coughs> chapter 25. Um, but basically what's happened is David's been out in the desert uh, protecting some shepherds whether incidentally on, on purpose he was protecting them. They were the shepherds of a wealthy man uh, named uh, Nabal. And uh, this wealthy man, he's, he's, he's my kind of wealthy, he has 3,000 sheep. You know, so it's like, that's, whoo, he's a, he's, a, he's a rich man. But David, David he, he obviously thinks, okay, I've helped this guy out. I've, I, maybe we can ask him for some, some help on a feast day. They're having a shearing day, it's a feast day. And he says, hey, he sends some young men to him. Can you spare some food from, for us? But, but this Nabal guy, he is, he's, he's a worthless fellow and, uh, and ruthless. And he just 
insults David and sends his young men away empty-handed. And so, well, well, David has a bit of a, I'd call it a brain snap. And David gathers 400 warriors with their swords and goes down to slaughter Nabal on an insult. And have a look what David said. Uh, David had just said, It's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. That is all true. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male alive who belongs to him. It's a little bit extreme, isn't it? This is horrendous. He insulted me. I will wipe out his, his legacy, his family, his servants, his household. And he's on his way. His guys have got the swords. They're marching down to Nabal's place. But just check out how God brings David his word in this place. See, in his rage, David didn't consult God. And it's actually really noticeable. One of the uh, people in our home group brought that up. Ah, David didn't ask God this time. Uh, all the other stories, David has said, sought the Lord, should I go down and defend Keilah? Will Saul catch me? He doesn't ask. He's just furious. He doesn't seek God's word. But, but look at how God steps in, even though David doesn't want the word at this point. And that's where Abigail comes from. She's Naosh's wife. She gets wind of what's happening. She, she packs a feast of food and rushes to intercept David as he's coming down to slaughter every male in her home. That's, that's what's about to happen. Can you imagine being a, a, a woman in the ancient Near East with a band of 400 furious warriors marching down to slaughter your household? And she's got a, a couple of donkeys loaded with food and yet she confronts David. She falls to her face in front of him, presents her food and says this please forgive your servant's presumption the lord your god will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my lord because you fight the lord's battles and no wrongdoing will ever be found in you as long as you live even though someone is pursuing you to take your life the life of my lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the lord your god but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he's promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. Now, what, what, a, what a tremendous woman, what a tremendous human to step in and say what is right in the face of a band of warriors. And she's not just wise, she's not just savvy, she, she's godly, because she speaks God's words to David. She reminds David of the promises that God has made him. You will be king, you will have a dynasty. She reminds him of God's words. And she actually, she plays the role of a prophet really clearly here. She, the prophets, they rarely brought new insight. They rarely, sometimes they said, hey, here's a new word from God. Mostly the prophets spoke to God's people. They pointed back to what God had already said and said, you've forgotten. God's already spoken to you, you've forgotten. And that's what she does here. She's, she doesn't quote it, but she's reminding David of Deuteronomy 32, where God said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. That's in a chapter where God says, hey, you don't get to take vengeance. 
I will avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's Abigail's words, isn't it? Don't, don't avenge yourself with this needless bloodshed. She points back to God's word. And David can so clearly see that this is a blessing from God. David says to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel who sent you to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. You've kept me, Abigail. You have kept me. But it wasn't you, was it? What's he say? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you. Because David knows about this God who provides his word, his prophecy, even when we're not looking at it. The fourth thing we see in David's life here is, is a provenness. Uh, and that is a time of testing where David is proven to be really the man after God's own heart. Uh, and, and what we find, we, have, we actually have two stories like this, two stories where David has an opportunity to kill Saul and doesn't. And we're going to go to the, the second one here. It was in the reading. Um, so, so we won't read through it all. But, but David hears that Saul's there. He sneaks up. He can see they're all asleep. So he sneaks on down uh, with, he, with his buddy, um, uh, Abishai, um, and he says, well, who will go down with me to the camp to Saul? I'll go with you, says Abishai, verse 7. So David, Abishai, they go to the army by night, and there's Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head, and Abner and the soldiers were lying all around him, and Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay his hand on the Lord's anointed be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him down, or his time will come and he will die, or he'll go into the battle and perish. But the Lord forbid it that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head. Let's go. Often uh, situations like this come up, and it's unclear whether it's a test or an opportunity. Because David knew that the kingship was his. God had promised that to him. He'd been anointed. And, and Abishai had a point, didn't he? This is it, David. God's put all these guys to sleep. This is a big sort of army encampment. And they just waltzed on in. Saul's asleep. There's a spear handy. This is it, surely. This is God providing an opportunity, David, to, to take the kingship that he promised to you. But David recognises it's a test. It's not an opportunity. He says, no. Maybe he's got fresh in his memory Abigail's words. Let God deal with him. Let God deal with him. I don't want to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. See, see when these things come about, David's recognised that it's not just getting to God's goal, but it's doing it in God's way. God wanted David to be king and he wanted Saul dead. We see that in the coming chapters. It's not, that's, it's not just the outcome God wants. He cares about how it happens. And so David waits, has patience. He recognises that God cares about ethics, about the how we get there, not just that we do. Uh, and, and often in our despair, opportunities like this do come up. Or maybe tests to prove whether we love and trust God most. 
Do I really trust God to get me out of this hole? Or will I take this opportunity that is so seemingly providentially popped up? Just because a door has opened doesn't mean God has opened it. Doesn't mean we should step through it. There are tests and there are opportunities and often they're hard to tell the difference of. But David recognised it. He does really magnificently here, doesn't he? This is Saul who, who really does deserve to die. A horrendous character by this point. He proves himself to be after God's own heart. <clears throat> but David doesn't get it all right in these chapters, does he? Well, we've already seen some of this with the Abigail story. Someone insults him and he's ready to wipe out their whole household. Uh, we have the whole lying episode with Abishai the priest. Where he, he lies outright to Abishai. Uh, and they might have both known it was a lie, but that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. There's another little story where he kind of goes to the Philistine king for some reason with Goliath's sword on his back. Not a great idea. Actually goes to Gath, the place where Goliath comes from with Goliath's sword. And, and he, he pretends to be mad, like dribbling on his beard and scratching the walls to try and escape. And, and we don't know whether that was good or bad, but you're like, ah. Oh. It doesn't feel like you're trusting God at this point, David. So he's, he's not perfect, not by a long shot. And as good as David is at, at, at moments, you read these chapters and you say, we need a better king than this, don't we? We need a better king than one who, who loses his temper and gets ready to slaughter thoughtlessly. Which is why the Bible doesn't stop at David. You, you read through to 1 Samuel and it doesn't end. There's, there's the rest of the Bible uh, David is not the saviour that we need, he's just a foreshadow, he's just a type of the promised king. And when we see that really clearly in, uh, in two, 2 Samuel and in Chronicles, where God actually promises David, hey, I'm going to raise up an even better king. Here's from 1 Chronicles 17, one of those promises. God says to David, when your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to secede you. One of your own sons, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take away my love from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house, my kingdom forever. His throne will be established. And if you've been reading your New Testament recently, you might remember where Jesus stands in the temple and I imagine he points to himself, or he just goes like this, and he says, destroy this house, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. It's not, not the building he's talking about, it's himself. Jesus is the true home of God, he's God himself. It wasn't Solomon the ultimate fulfilment of this promise, Jesus is, the descendant of David. And he had a time very like David's time in the wilderness, a time of distress. Really, Jesus' whole life was a time of distress, of testing. We read that he never had a home to lay his, his head down in. He was always wandering. But, the, but there's a time of particular testing or distress for D Jesus where he has this 40 days where the Spirit of God leads him into the desert, especially to be tested, to be tempted by the devil, we're told. Uh, and he's fasting for this time and the devil comes to him and tempts him, tests him. Hey, Jesus, turn these rocks into bread. I know you can. It's an opportunity, isn't it? Jesus is hungry. He can turn them into bread. Yeah, he turned five loaves to feed 5,000. He can turn rocks into bread. What's wrong? It's a, it's a test. It's not an opportunity. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Devil says, hey, come and jump off the temple. God will save you. 
yeah, he will. But Jesus again replies and quotes God's word. No, 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 we, we don't test the Lord your God. And I'll pick it up in verse 7. Um, or actually verse 8. So this is verse 7. That's the answer to that question. Jesus answered him. It's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for he's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This was the, the ultimate test, the ultimate opportunity. Because Jesus is the promised king, the eternal one who would rule, who will, who does rule over all the nations and the peoples for eternity. And Satan says, hey, this is, this is yours by right. Have it now. You are the king. You're promised, David's promised son. Uh, a shortcut. And where David gets it right sometimes and sometimes horrendously wrong, Jesus gets it right again and again and again. And do you see what Jesus hangs on to here? Scripture. Three times that Satan tests him, three times Jesus points back to the Old Testament. No, the Lord has said, isn't it written? He points back to prophecy, God's word. And God provides for him, doesn't he? Protects him, provides for him. Now, what does this all mean for us? Well, the first thing, I think there's a big temptation in these chapters as we look at David we look at him go wrong and look at him go right. And we think, well, we better be like David when he does well and don't be like David when he does badly. You sort of say, well, I better be like Jesus and, and do it right. I, I, I better prove myself worthy to be in Jesus' family. And that's just not on. Because I'm, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but you will fail. I'll fail. Every, every human other than Jesus fails miserably when it comes to passing this test, when it comes to responding in every situation right to our children, to our colleagues, to our parents, to our siblings, to our neighbours and friends, all the time, right. We, we fail. Don't try and earn yourself into heaven because you'll fall so far short it's not funny. And don't even try and clean yourself up a bit before coming to Jesus. If you're, if you're holding off, oh, I just want to tidy up these couple areas of my life before I depend on Jesus. You won't get there. That's not the lesson of these. I say, you've got, to, you've got to get this good and then you can come to Jesus. No, Jesus did it. That's, the, that's actually the message of the cross. That's the Christian gospel says you can't do this. That's one reason why we have the whole Old Testament, because every hero in the Old Testament is a spectacular failure. David's the best of him, the man after our God's own heart, the, the man who will slaughter every male on an insult, the man who, who commits adultery and murders a husband to cover it up. Every hero in the Bible is a failure except Jesus. As a saying to us, you can't earn yourself into the kingdom of God. You've got to trust Jesus. That's why he died. To pay for the times when we fail. Trust the only one and truly worthy one. Trust this king. But we all are also called to follow him. To, to imitate him. Paul says to us, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. If you've trusted Jesus, if you have come into him and said, Lord, I, I, I can't do this, I need you. 
Forgive me, cleanse me, save me. He then says, well, follow me. I'll renew you, come and follow me. And, and at those times, then we can see these lessons from David in his distressing time for us. Because God doesn't promise an easy life for his children. He doesn't say, come be a Christian and I'll sort everything out. He doesn't promise it. He promises a wilderness time. Did you know Christians are called aliens, uh, not Martians? Aliens as in foreigners, as in citizenless. You don't have a citizenship to this world, we're told. If you follow Jesus, you're not a citizen of this world. That, that, that's, that's the kind of tone of the New Testament Christian life. It's kind of a wilderness time where we're not settling. We're waiting for our true home in heaven. And there are times of particular desperation. But God provides in those times. There's this wonderful verse in 1 Corinthians 10. Great memory verse, if you can remember it. Paul promises this. This is God's word. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Uh, one of my pet peeves, sorry if you've got one, is those calendars with one verse on them and a sunset. Uh, if you've got one, chuck it out. Read your Bible instead because they're always taken out of context. Well, almost always. One verse on its own. There's a misquote of this passage that comes up again and again. It says, God won't give you more than you can handle. Rubbish. God regularly gives us more than we can handle. But what's he promise? He won't give you more than you can bear, but will always provide a way out. Um, I, I've, I've experienced this usually after failing many times. There was a time in my life where I'd become a Christian. I was used to drinking far too much. And I came back to my old friends. <clears throat> I tried to go out and just drink a little bit. And I failed numerous times at just drinking a little bit. And, and, and eventually I realised I just had to stop. I, I had to drink lemonade. I couldn't just have a beer. And I did that for a couple of years and then slowly I can have a beer now. But I had to watch that. It, it wasn't an easy decision. You had to put up with all the laughs when, oh, designated driver, no, no, I'm just drinking lemonade. It's not, God doesn't promise an easy, a simple, a painless way out, but there will always be a way out so you won't shipwreck your faith. That's what he's talking about here. There'll be a way out so that you don't sin and abandon your faith. And God will always do it. He's promised that. That's his words. There will always be an escape that you can take. It might be hard, but it will be there. The other thing we always have is, is prophecy. That is God's word. I want to tell you about this guy... A uh, Haiyan farm, a uh, Vietnamese Christian uh, who was, he, he'd helped out the, the, the American military, he'd helped a bunch of missionaries. Uh, and when Vietnam, Vietnam was under communist uh, rule, he was rounded up and put in a com concentration camp, a re education camp. And he was starved and beaten and locked up and given his daily dose of Marxism. And after a period of months, he started to wonder. He started to wonder. And there was one night where he was praying, as he always did, and he, he, he was praying and he, he, he said to God, I, I think you're not real. It can't be real. You can't, you can't be real. He had, had no access to a Bible for all this time. And, and he committed to himself, I, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm not going to pray. And I'm never going to think about the Christian faith again. 
He got up in the morning and his, uh, his chief officer put him on latrine duty, the, the duty no one wanted. He was doing latrine duty. And he spotted a, a scrap of paper in the, amongst the feces and it had some English written on it. He hadn't seen English in, in months. So he stuck it in his pocket, snuck away, scraped it off. And it was a page from Romans chapter 8. I'll, I'll read it. Uh, this, this, this is the page that he found in the latrine covered in poo that he scraped clean. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God's foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. I'll skip down to verse 37. Not, own, not no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and when Hyan read this, it all came rushing back. This little scrap of the Bible covered in feces. He, he, he'd committed, he didn't pray that morning. And God gave him prophecy, his word. And he, he went to his officer and requested to be on latrine duty the next day. And sure enough, he found another page of Romans. Turns out one of the officers had been using an English Bible as toilet paper. And that's how God got his word. <laughs> Bit unorthodox, but he got his word to Hyann. And it saved his soul. And he, he came through all this. There's a great lesson in this for us, in, in Abigail speaking to David as he's rushing down to commit a... I don't know if David could have come back from that. Abigail said, you don't want this on your conscience. I don't know if David could have come back from that. But God provided his word. He provided his word for her and he provides his word for us. And often it's the thing that goes... Often for me it's the thing that it goes when I'm in distress, but cling on, it's the thing that will save us. It's the thing that will save us. And the last lesson for us here is the provenness. That distress is often God giving us a test or an opportunity. Here's what Paul says again in Romans about this. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You might be remember if you're with us last year as we we're working through Romans, that word for character is the word for proven character. As in my old 1968 David Brown tractor has character. It's got character. It's proven. It started every day, every year since 1968 and hasn't let the farmer down. That's, that's what's meant here. How does perseverance produce character? Not just a, you know, a unique personality. No, proven character. It, it proves your faith. A new Christian faith that is all shiny is lovely. But a Christian faith that is battered and bruises and has some scrapes is even more beautiful. It's got character. Because it's persevered through ups and downs. It's seen the opportunities and the tests for what they are and it's clung to God by his word through it all. And so that's, that's our word for today. When we're in those times of desperation and distress, which will come, they're, they're 
promised to us as Christians. They promise to us. God provides for his people. Let's pray. Father God, we, we do thank you and praise you that not only do you act in this world, but you, you reveal to us what you were doing. You don't just dump us in hard situations without a word, but you dump us in hard situations with your word, with these amazing promises and assurances, with heroes of the faith who, like us, were not perfect, but who, like David, repented when they were confronted with your word and stayed faithful. And we pray that in our times of distress, you would keep us faithful. You would help us to cling on. You would use these things to prove our faith, to prove yourself faithful. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing now and then we'll jump up for question time.